Welcome to the Fundraising Talent Podcast. I'm Kyla Daw, and I'm glad you decided to join us on today's episode of the show that is shaping how the nonprofit sector thinks about fundraising talent. Rather than advice from experts, our listeners want to hear the insights and ideas from those who, just like them, are on the front lines every day, building meaningful relationships that translate into meaningful support for causes that they and their donors care about. Every week, we invite our guests to have a real conversation about what it means to be a fundraising professional. We're after a greater understanding of what it means to be one of the sector's critically important yet least understood roles, while giving honest answers to our profession's most difficult questions. Thank you for joining us in this episode of the Fundraising Talent Podcast. Here's your host, author, fundraiser, and master trainer, Jason Lewis. Hi, podcast listeners. This is Jason Lewis, and I am your host for the Fundraising Talent Podcast. I want to thank you for joining us today for the show that is shaping the way that the nonprofit sector thinks about fundraising talent. Before I introduce today's guest, I do want to thank our sponsor, QBAC. QBAC is a next-generation advancement solution that reimagines alumni engagement to increase major planned and principal giving. QBAC acts as a force multiplier for fundraisers, enabling them to focus on what they do best, developing deep relationships with prospects and cultivating them into lifelong donors. QBAC automates the qualification process beyond simple scoring to ensure that your fundraisers have the best prospects. QBAC also uncovers actionable insights about current and future prospects to help fundraisers develop personalized cultivation strategies. Start closing bigger gifts in less time by going to www.qback.com to schedule a free demo. Also, how about being our next host for the Responsive Fundraising Roadshow? I'm looking forward to two things this summer, getting back to the ballpark with my kids and getting the Responsive Fundraising Roadshow back on the calendar. If your organization would like to be a host location, let's schedule a time to chat. The Responsive Fundraising Roadshow provides six hours of the best fundraising training out there based on Responsive's four sense-making tools. Hosting Responsive's Roadshow is not like hosting a major conference that requires months of planning and all types of resources. All we need you to do is provide us with a safe learning environment for 25 adult professionals in your community who want to understand how highly effective fundraising really works. There is no cost to your organization, and we will reimburse you for all related expenses. If your organization would like to host the Responsive Fundraising Roadshow in your community, reach out and let's have a conversation today. Hi, Catherine. I am delighted to have you on the Fundraising Talent Podcast today. I think you and I, just like everybody else, uh, is connecting on LinkedIn, and I think there was probably some conversation that you and I were in the midst of with probably a bunch of other people a couple of months ago. And um, I think I extended an invitation for you to get on here and talk about some of the stuff you're doing. So I'm very much looking for this, looking forward to this conversation, Catherine. But before we dive into that, how about we just ask you to introduce yourself to our listeners? Sure. Thank you for having me on. I'm really looking forward to this conversation, too. So my name is Catherine Dilworth. I am a philanthropy consultant, a longtime frontline fundraiser, and I'm also a philanthropy scholar. Um, I publish research on fundraising, and I teach um, students um, who are studying philanthropy. So my kind of position, really, when it comes to fundraising is a little bit different. And, you know, a lot of uh, consultants and even scholars who are, you know, they just kind of talk about like, how can we bridge 
these missions to um, to donors to support you know philanthropy and of course that's the ultimate goal but I really am interested in the fundraiser and you know we talk a lot about the donor experience and I'm very yes. interested in the fundraiser experience and yes. and, and re- really I mean to be honest it came out of my own experience um, right and I've worked at so many uh, kinds of nonprofits I came out of the south uh, which is you know, not as sophisticated a nonprofit sector, really. I mean, down there is um, as some other places and purposefully left um, to professionalize. And so I had been working in libraries and museums and I worked for the Nature Conservancy down in the South and I really wanted to get into higher ed. And so I moved to the Midwest to take a job and and then since um, found myself on the West Coast too. So that that was kind of my journey. But one thing that I found, even as I moved into more professional environments, was that the fundraiser was this kind of odd duck in the organization, you know, kind yeah. of off on their own. And sometimes it was that leadership recruiters, you know, just didn't understand not just how fundraising work, but also the conditions that a fundraiser really needs to be successful. And so for various reasons, I would find myself a few months into a job and think, oh my gosh, <laughs> this is not going to go well. Yeah. Um, and and then, you know, kind of there are other things too that, that come up um, that are challenges to do this work, of course. And so when I moved into what I, you know, this new stage of consulting and outside of frontline fundraising, I really wanted to come out strong as an advocate for fundraisers. I, I think that they're special, of course, because, you know, this is, this is my career and I have so many friends and colleagues who are fundraisers and I know their hearts and they often join, you know, this field because they want to make a difference. Um, And I, and so what I'm doing right now and kind of my big idea at the moment is just really bringing some of our challenges to the surface. Um, It's not about outrage for me. This is about healing and this is about finding solutions. But I think that I really wanted to acknowledge some, some of the outrage in the sector. Catherine, in my, in my, it's interesting sort of that you tee up the conversation that way. Cause that's, that's, that's sort of like you and I are two peas in a pod because we're pretty much thinking the same way. So in my, in my first book, I made a statement earlier in the book and I said basically that in the future, there was going to be this increasing divide between fundraisers who found themselves in shops that sort of knew what they were doing and shops that didn't know what they were doing and that it was the ability to and, and I've, I've had to sort of unpack this when I'm doing a presentation, for example, somebody in the audience will sort of say, unpack this. And what I've basically had to explain to them is that I was making this sort of this environmental, sort of this ecological sort of assessment on the environment in which the fundraiser was working in. And all of a sudden, you, could, you can see when you're sort of making this critique or sort of drawing their attention to this idea that... Fundraisers are landing, talented fundraisers are landing in places where the shops that they're working for don't know the hell what they're doing is kind of what it comes down to. 
Is that is that kind of where you're coming from too? Yeah, I, it's it's exactly, and I'll tell you kind of how I characterize it. And this is an overstatement, so I mean, I don't want to suggest that uh, that organizations cannot begin fundraising. Sure, but as, sure. As someone in my, you know, now twenty years in at my level, the yeah. thing that I have learned is really the last thing you want to hear is come help us build a program. Because if yeah. someone's saying, come help us build a program, that means they don't have one and they probably don't know how it works. And this is some, this can be a real trap for what I call magical thinking around fundraising. Yeah. And I think yeah. you know what I'm talking about. I you do. Know? Yep. Yep. Um, this is why recruiters continue for some reason to ask how much you raised at your last position. You know, what's the biggest gift you've ever raised? Why does this matter? I mean, right. it's a, it's really about impact because it's the organization that's really going to drive what size that gift is, what their what their community looks like, how they've, you know, how they've nurtured that relationship over the years. It's not as simple as saying, oh, I raised twenty five million dollars at one place. And they're like, great. Come on. Yeah. 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 And and you bring up the, you bring up the, and I don't think we've done a sort of an all out critique or assault on the executive search firms, but you and I might be the best suited to do this. Um, You bring up the search firms. I tend to think that they're some of the more guilty, guilty in this sort of this problematic sort of situation than anybody else. It's, it's the, because and, and, and I think some people are somewhat surprised that, you know, because here we are on a podcast that's titled Fundraising Talent. And that was one of the themes in my, that was the central theme in that first book that I wrote. But I'm not in sort of the talent search, sort of executive search sort of market, because I think they're in some ways sort of part of perpetuating a lot of this problem. You know, I, 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 I really just can't even respond because I'm not sure. And I hate to speak for them, but I will say, I will agree with you that uh, this, they're an important bridge to bringing talent in, but they Uh are certainly part of setting expectations that may not be appropriate with their client, you know? So, and that's part of them getting their business, right? We're going to bring you someone great. Well, what kind of education is going on? You know, we really, as the, as the talent coming in, we don't have any way of knowing um, how they've been prepared, how this organization has been prepared for us. What do they think we can do? What have they heard about us? Well, probably they've heard this amazing story about how fantastic. And we did all this at this one place, but I think that the search firms really do need to take a responsibility for setting expectations. They have the ear, they have the trust of the leadership and saying, you know, this is what does onboarding mean? What does, getting your, your, your sea legs mean, yeah. you, you know, just setting that because you do feel this pressure. I was just, someone commented on one of my posts this morning talking about rushing that need to rush, like, Oh, we have to hurry up. We have to hurry up and close a gift when we get in this new position. Yes, right, and she right. said, I see this with younger fundraisers for sure, but I've experienced it every time I've changed a job. Like, oh my gosh, I need to make them feel okay that they have, they are paying me this money. I need to get something in really quick. And that starts to just get into a whole molehill of problems that have to do with how we do, how we pace ourselves with relationship building, how we, um, you know, understand what success means and how long it might take. And so, of course, I've been digging into 
the, the assessment models because yeah. I think they're a big driver for getting everybody kind of off task in terms yeah. of like connecting to philanthropic missions and on task of hitting numbers. So, so when I read your articles, cause I read, I think I've read everything that you posted, especially in the last couple of months and I appreciate all of it, but I I'm reminded when I read what your sort of critique is on sort of where some of these problems sort of originate from and, and, and sort of piggybacking on what I said a few moments ago about the executive search search world. So I'm a baseball guy and we watch, and I've been watched the way that professional baseball plays out for years and what has always sort of been a real, what I've always thought about the way that fundraising plays out is, is in the baseball world, just like in any other, any, any, any sort of environment, any sort of professional by any definition of whatever professional it is, if you put that professional in a lousy, completely dysfunctional environment, it doesn't really matter what kind of home run hitter you hire. And so, for example, we have a minor league ballpark here that we'll, that we're spending, we'll spend the entire summer at. But part of what makes these, these are actually quite amateur baseball players by comparison. And they're making, you know, pennies compared to what the major leagues are making. But the ballpark itself is a beautiful ballpark. It is extraordinarily well designed. It will be there forever. It's certainly not Wrigley Field, but it's a beautiful ballpark. And I think that when I read your article, like, for example, your most recent article, I'm reading a critique on the ballpark, not the ball players. And 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 so how do we relate this to the executive search firm? I want I want people like you and I to perhaps rally together and start helping fundraisers find the ballparks that they need to work for. I am you know what I'm so, saying? Do you follow oh no, what I'm saying? This is exactly. In fact, I've been thinking the same thing. You know, you and I had a conversation once about consequences. And, yeah. you know, unfortunately, the all of the rationale, all of the great explanations, all of the well-crafted reasonings do not really change minds when things are going just fine for people. You know, this yeah. is working just fine right. for them. And so, yes, I would love to have a list of places not to go, frankly. I mean, right. I hear ever since I started kind of putting things up. And just so you know, there's a lot more because, you know, when you're working at an institution, you don't you don't talk like this on LinkedIn. So I do have some freedom uh, now that, that I have my own business. But um, I, I have heard from so many people, you know, and they're just, they're struggling or, and sometimes they're just flat out miserable. Um, but you're right about, I love the baseball, so I'm soccer. And so I, so this is the way I always describe it. I always say you can, you can have the best striker. You, you can have someone who can score from midfield, but if you have a crap team around you, she cannot get down the field. Exactly. And that, exactly. That is just such a common experience for so many fundraisers. And, and it's, so, yeah, I, I I really have not thought about this clearly because I'm like stuttering around thinking about it. But the search team, I see that as being a real so, avenue. So, so, so let me let me put this. So I was working with a client a year ago and this client, um, this contract's over with. Um, and this whole time, their 
they're saying to me, okay, we need to hire a development director. We need to hire a development director. They basically wanted me to behave like a search, like a search firm. And I said, I'm not really here. That's not what I do. I help you to use the analogy of a ballpark. And trust me, they heard the analogy over and over again. I'm here to help you create a remarkable ballpark so that when you hire someone, regardless of how talented they are, they can actually come in here and, and do and play some remarkable ball for you. And I got to tell you that it never sunk in. I mean, the contract ended, it ended and, and, and even to this day there, I know they're in the midst of a search right now and what they're basically doing, Catherine, and you know, this, this is the stuff you write about and you and I are talking about here. They're setting this person up to sort of exist as a highly, and to use your words a few minutes ago, you kind of use that, um, I, I always call it, they're sort of a necessary evil and they sort of, they sort of push fundraising down into this, you know, it's, it's the department down the hall. It sort of functions as sort of a subculture. Um, and it's really just a highly efficient way to bring in revenue that the, the, the dominant culture can't sort of bring in on its own. Right. Mm. And I mean, even to this day, the, the client couldn't, I mean, to, to at the point at which the contract sort of wrapped up, um, I wanted this client to have the benefit somehow of being able to say to a candidate, we have gone through the process of shaping and forming ourselves, right? Of getting our act together so that when you come in here, we evaluate you correctly. We understand that you being here, you know, longevity in your role is going to, is going to be far more valuable than you hitting some home runs, you know, the first inning sort of stuff. Does that make sense? I I had a conversation recently <laughs> with with someone and I was kind of kind of making a pitch to come in and do that. Like, let me set yeah. you up to even make this possible. And you could just see it's like glaze glazing over. Like, right. I don't want to know. And you know, I I remember in early days and people experience this all the time. It's kind of like, I don't want to know. Just go get the money. I don't want to know how. Yes. There's this right. discomfort still. But yeah, I mean, fundraisers don't need to be down the hall. They need to be, and this this just shocks leaders when I talk to them about this, but fundraisers need to be in every meeting. Whether they're mm-hmm. participating or not, they need to be there because they need to know what you all are thinking, what you're all talking about, what you're planning. You may think that this is just a little assistant development director who you're paying like $40,000 a year, but with, you know, an expectation of like several million in income, they're the ones talking to the people who fund you. That's the face. You know, why are they not in every meeting? I mean, I was uh, in a role in the, it was an assistant dean level and I was not in any leadership meetings. It was just like, oh, that's fundraising, you know, do that. You know, so so do you. Okay, so you get the um, that's integration. So if if mm -hmm. the if the fundraiser is not integrated into the culture of the organization, isn't it true, Catherine? And I think this is what people like you and I and I think you you, you're you know, my friend, you know, our friend Jennifer Harris, for example, she's saying the same sort of stuff. What we need to be saying is if you're not integrated, you, the fundraiser, are not integrated into the organization, if you're not an essential component, like seen as 
mission statement says either directly or indirectly that the that the fundraising function of this institution matters then essentially that same message essentially reaches out to the donor as well right the donor is never going to be any more integrated into the organization than the fundraiser themselves is and so if you're sitting there looking at like i i i totally cringe and turn turn in my seat and get angry when the um when the fundraising effectiveness project results come out, because they come out, they just came out a couple of weeks ago, or maybe just last week. But we're looking at renewal rates of donors, but we're not paying attention to the fact that if your if your fundraiser is turning over literally every twelve to eighteen months, that's why your renewal rates suck. Am I right? Okay, so yeah, so let's get into like <laughs> what's behind this because this is this is what my research, this is where my research is. So all of this. All of these things that are impacting the value of engagement, you know, there's so many um, and many that we've just discussed. But where I start from is what is what is the human behavior thing that's that drives success? And there's a lot of research that's been done in the field of philanthropy on that. And a lot of what has come out is this role of social capital and what exactly. So it's there you know, what exactly is it and what does yeah. it really do? And, and research has been able to demonstrate that if you build social capital, which is just sure. like financial capital, but just social, yes. and it's not about parties, you know, but yes. it's, it's, it's this mutual edifying experience and what, however a person defines that for themselves. If you build that, they will not only continue to give, they'll increase their giving. So my, so what I advocate and what I've written about and published and uh, what I have on my website for training opportunities, not yet, but soon is, is how to do that. And it's what it is. It's just, it's the work we're used to doing, but it's understanding specifically what that power is and, and really leveraging it, really being thoughtful and intentional about building social capital. And so, yeah, if your fundraiser goes out and They've, they never, they don't even know the director very well. They're certainly not involved in anything. They're just sent out. How are they supposed to build social capital with someone you want to give to you when they don't know anything? They don't really know anything. They don't know what the vision is. They've got some kind of leave behind sheet, you know, and, and then how, how is your organization uh, resourced to, continue to build that social capital. And so that really comes down to what we talk about all the time, which is like the unicorn of, of fundraising, which is this culture of philanthropy. And ultimately you have to have it to be successful. Yeah. 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 That means everybody, right? Um, Yes. So I have a, I have a chapter coming out in a book that's in libraries. I love libraries. And so I focus a lot of my research. I set it within that environment. Um, to contribute to library literature too. And I talk about how through just the work, just the work that different staff do, how, how they need to be intentional about building social capital Um, because it makes everything better, not just the fundraising. It makes your service better. It makes your work life experience better. It makes the workplace a more pleasant place. Yeah. Um, Yeah. But that's, that's not measurable work. And so now we get back to this kind of quantitative fallacy stuff I'm so stuck on is yeah. why, why isn't it valuable? Because we can't measure it. It's, we know it's valuable. There's tons of evidence that it's going to create just a much more successful 
endeavor all around. So how does the, okay. So, um, for the last year, this is the quandary. This is the quandary that I think, I I think we need to get a group of Mavericks like yourself and myself and a couple others in a room and, and start screaming some of this stuff. So how do we, how do we address some of the qualitative aspirational things that we've been talking about for the last year, right? We're talking about diversity, equity, inclusion, and we want the, we want the person in the fundraising seat to be less, you know, we want it to be less white guys, for example, in the, in the, in the fundraising seat. And perhaps we even want more, fewer white guys in the, in the donor seat too. But if we don't go down that path of developing that social capital, if we don't go and build those meaningful relationships, this is the connect. This is the disconnect that I don't think some of our fundraising colleagues sort of pick up on. You can't achieve some of those higher aspirations that we're all talking about if you're working for a shop that doesn't know what the hell they're doing. Does that right? You, you can't. I can't get you a better, a more representative donor. I can't get you better compensated. I can't get you all of these things that you're saying that are rightfully in better oriented towards justice and all these other things. If you're just going to work for a shop that acts like complete morons. I think the first thing that we always have to do is give them the bad news. And it's like, you know how you can't just have a kid and leave them alone and expect them to be all right. And you know, your marriage probably isn't going to stick together if you guys, like have nothing that you talk about. It's the same. I mean, friendships, I mean, come on, this is human nature. You cannot be transactional with humans. It's not going to work. I mean, you may occasionally kind of like if you stand there, right. With your fishing hook in the water all day long, you're probably eventually due to statistics and not any talent going to yes. get a bite. But, yes. um, Yeah, it's that's the first thing is just like, let me break your heart for just a minute. Trust me, we're going to help you out. But let's get this magical thinking stuff out of the way. And and it's not, you know, it's it is, of course, an assumption that makes sense for people who don't know how it works, but it's reinforced all the time. I mean, the people I'm the most frustrated with are the ones peddling all of these models of like, if you ask 70 people, you're going to, you know, stop. Thank you. We do need like a workflow. I, I'm not against that. Sure. Um, sure. But stop telling people that it's magic. It's yeah. not. And yeah. just because you have a, a breathing human to send out, you know, in a blazer to like make yes. the ask, that's not, that's not it, it either. Yeah. I mean, is, isn't that... Um, and I think you and I ran on that. So I, I, po- I, we had a podcast guest on here, uh, you know, four to six weeks ago, you, you saw this, this is might've been one of the conversations you and I were engaged in about the nature of the conversation. We, you and I know that the conversation is so essential that it's, that it's front and center in what the, what is the most meaningful work that a fundraiser can do. And what I've been researching about the nature of conversation as a institutional organizational practice is, is that since the beginning of the 20th century, conversation has always been assumed in the workplace in general. Conversation has never been a value. It's never been something that we valued because it couldn't be measured. And so everything that conversation talks about, for example, all the metrics and stuff that you're, you're critiquing and what some of your writing, 
it, it, it's like it's like we miss the fact that you can talk about all these things, but what is most important is the fact that you're doing the talking. And so when it comes to fundraising and the practices that most of these shops, most of these fundraisers are inheriting, they're not actually talking to their donors. You know, there's a lot of uh, explicit communication going out in the mail and in email and da, 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 but ultimately they never get to the lunch table and have meaningful conversations. You know, but they want to, I, when I when I did my research on this social capital fundraising model, I interviewed a lot of people about it, fundraisers, um, yeah. leader, nonprofit leaders. And then particularly because I was I was I had it kind of set in higher ed um, VPs of advancement. And I really expected to get the biggest pushback from them. And I didn't. And they said, this is how we wish we could do our work. This is how I wish the VPs that I were could, telling you that. Yeah, this is how I wish I could let my employees do the work. But the pressure is so great from the top to increase fundraising every year that I'm I'm afraid to change. You would have to be able to prove without a doubt that we would make more money for me to be able to change the way we do this. Right. Okay. Cause so you can't keep okay, so if I'm if I'm reading between the lines of what you just said there, okay, you can't create social capital via direct mail, in my opinion. Okay. You can create well, you a, can maybe a little groundwork for it. You can lay the groundwork. Yeah, you yeah, can lay sure. the groundwork. Fair, mm-hmm. fair. Yeah, that's fair. Okay. You can lay the groundwork, but you can't essentially create social capital of the sort that you're talking about. But it is what I'm hearing is, is you've got VPs in higher education and perhaps other larger institutions that are basically saying that because direct mail is so damn predictable and because it's essentially the cultural sort of norm to drive significant amounts of our money, even though we know that if we remove that donor from the direct mail stream, hire somebody in a sport coat and take that donor out to lunch because it's not as predictable, we're not going to do it. Is, is that what they're basically telling you in your research? Precisely. And, you know, because now they're, that's, that's putting them at risk. Although that makes them sound cold. And I was, I cannot stress how surprised, absolutely shocked I was at how they, and it was, and the, the interviews I did because I was working in the library, I, I had a first set that said talking about the value of the library and the second set talking about the social capital fundraising approach. Yeah. And the VPs hated the first part. You know, <laughs> you know, they were like so negative. So I was just waiting to get the same kind of stuff on the social capital. And it just kind of melted them. And they were just like, yeah, I would love to be able to do this. You know? Yes. So and, it, and- because it's human. You know, it's human and it's respectful and it's, it, it just, it feels better. And a lot the other thing that, that, you know, I mentioned that came up was that they said we could keep our people. I just know we could keep our people better because we could, our teams would remain intact if they could do this because it feels good. And that's the, really the, the, social the, capital. It is a network, but it's the mutual benefits. And I know benefits are a bad word in fundraising. So think about it in a different way, but, but it, it, it feels it, good to it, do it, it that way. In the stuff that you're in the stuff that I've been reading that you've been writing about, um, some of the you use the word, we were talking about this before we hit the record button, some of the creepy sort of ways that we, we carry out this work. So there's the, there's the direct mail side of this. There's the pre lunch table side of this, right there. There's before we get to the lunch table and then, 
and 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 I'm interested to sort of hear where where you think what is more problematic the 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 fact that direct mail, for example, and special everything that sort of keeps us away from building that depth of social capital pre lunch table, or is it the fact that we've got this intrusive well screening sort of analytical de- which which side of that do you think is more problematic for that fundraiser and what is it that like that shop that i was describing a few minutes ago that couldn't get their act together what do they most need to understand about you know wh- which side of that is is sort of most creepy in your mind oh gosh i mean that's a tough call i i think that the the donor research part's probably the most creepy i Okay. I think if you're going to have a, a meeting and you're going to ask someone to meet with you, you do need yes. to know a little, you need to know how much they've given to you so that you can properly thank them. Do your homework. Yeah, right. You need to know what it was so that that maybe gives an indication of what they're interested in. But the, it, it feels, I guess the creepiness is really that it, that it feels so dishonest because when you show up with, and your request has been let, Let's get to know each other. I'm new here. Or, hey, let's let's talk. Let's pick up from where we left off. And you know some of this stuff about them. I that, that would immediately break trust. To have come in with this very, you know, altruistic uh, approach to like just getting to know each other, or getting to know each other better, or checking in, or whatever. However, we kind of approach these meetings. And then to have known some of this stuff the whole time, I I just think that would that's a real risk. Okay, are you and I the only two people that would dare to say <laughs> that part of the reason these fundraisers are turning over as often as they are is because they keep landing in shops where they basically feel like they're faking relationships? Yeah. Okay. How I mean, many if times you're, have if you you're going to require that- me if I work for a large healthcare organization? Let's say I'm a 28-year-old. I've got that sport coat on, right? I'm a nice, charming, young development officer. You give me well-screening data on Mrs. Smith and expect me to do a bedside visit, and why aren't we correlating that with the fact that I quit that job a year later because I just feel creepy? I think that's a great question to ask. I think we should I think we should ask people about that. Um, I, I would suspect that it is... I mean, my gosh, you'd have to be a sociopath not to be bothered by some of these things, you know? We hire highly relational people. I bet if we did a Myers-Briggs, I bet if we, we know we're hiring some of the friendliest, most conversational, most genuine, authentic, I don't know, I mean, how many, how many adjectives can I attach to these people? These people don't want to show, I, I interview these people every week. It's like my conversation with you. I know these are real people. They don't want to feel like they're doing anything s- s- slimy. No. Creepy. No, especially because I mean, you have this entire kind of culture of uh, as a as a fundraiser, kind of reassuring people. I mean, it's so it's there, right? So you're already trying to overcome it, and then when you're literally sent out, your marching orders are to go be creepy. I mean, you're <laughs> undermining your own kind of <laughs> uh, everything. Yeah, marching orders. There, yeah. There's always, Catherine, there's always a point in these conversations where I figure out what the title of the podcast is going to be. And you just, <laughs> yeah, the marching orders. I mean, how many fundraisers are signing on jo- signing on for jobs where basically they're going to, their job description basically says, go out and be creepy. I mean, I bet you could ask, I would, everyone listening to this will remember a moment 
where they they're in a conversation, they're prepping to go uh, to meet with someone and they may be talking with their manager or talking with the director and something happens and it's just the worst buzzkill where your heart drops down because you're like, oh my God, am I really going to have to do that? (laughs) You know, really right now, it's often about let's go ahead and get the ask in when you know it's not time, you know, things like that, or see if you can find out this, but it's, it's just like, don't send me out as like your emissary (laughs) to do bad things or to do things that make me uncomfortable, you know, but we all had them. We've all had those experiences. Yeah, yeah, and and I think that's what. So I want to go back to social capital because um, Putnam. I'm sure uh, Robert Putnam's research came up a lot in your work. Mm-hmm. Um, so Putnam was one of the first guys who really put sort of social capital on the radar for for nonprofit organizations. I I, I would and society. Presume. I mean, yes, on society it had been in general, done, but, you know, but no one really he he elevated it for sure. And when and when you read Putnam's book, what part of Putnam's critique in there, if you you know, if you're right there in the middle of the book, and I don't know that a lot of people catch this, but he's describing this sort of this evolution, sort of after sort of World War II and after, you know, sort of the civil rights movement. He's describing this point in history where our nonprofit organizations become what he calls mailing list organizations. We sort of we lost the desire or the inclination to create nonprofit organizations that even create social capital to begin with. So he's saying that that's what organizations were. So if you think about, you know, if you think about after World War II, and you think about up to the civil rights movement, you think about nonprofit organizations in a completely different light and playing a completely different role. Um, And he's saying the same thing with bowling leagues and with the notion of bowling. Um, He's basically talking about how we had all these organizations that actually created that social capital. And I think what you're talking about, Catherine, when you talk about sort of putting social capital at the center of our fundraising, as our identity as fundraising professionals, Catherine, they've never worked for organizations that even know how to do that. They haven't. I'll give you that. But also, let's talk about why it's so important to do this. It is our, it's a secret weapon. Just what you've described, people, it's gone you know, this thing that's so fundamental to being human, it's gone. So what does that mean? People crave it. And yes. so it's a secret weapon. I mean, stop poo-pooing it. Figure out a way to measure it. We can talk about that another time because that's that's what I'm working on too. But, um, <laughs> but, you know, just do it. You are – the opportunity is huge. We are humans. We want to connect. We want to do something meaningful. We want to learn. You know, social capital means different things to different people. Um, You have to take the time to discover what it means to them. And, uh, you know, again, we I'll put in a a caveat. This is not about donor control. In fact, this this helps diminish donor control because you know each other. You know, you you can have these difficult conversations. Hey, come on now. I know you, you're pushing on this. You want to run this, but you can't, you know, that's, yeah, that allows right. those things to happen. It actually makes it better. Um, yes. but, but it, it, yes, the decline has really been felt in the nonprofit sector. Read his new book upswing. It just came out at the end of 2020. Okay. And okay. it is absolutely amazing. So Putnam just for everyone out there, cause 
everything is Putnam. Like he's my inspiration. Um, in <laughs> fact, I just saw a lecture of his. I'll have to send it to you after the show because he's absolutely just the most amazing human. But so this was 2000 when this book came out and it's like, holy crap, social capital. Yeah, that's a yes. thing. And it's like yes. money. You spend it, you borrow yes. it, you, you give it yes. away. It, it's, it's, it's this kind of really this connector. And, and what he did in Upswing, which just came out so 20 years later, is he's he's able to look across society and show that the decline across many factors, income, uh, equality, uh, education, that they are all aligned with with basically a decline in social capital in society. Yes, yes. And so the impact grows, you know. And again, what is the sector that responds to needs in the society? I mean, we can be that. We can be that social connector. Um, so, how so there's are you? real opportunity. So, so Catherine, okay, so there's an author. Um, oh, uh, and he st- st- teaches it, Simon Fraser up in, in Canada. Um, and he calls it psychosocial integration. It's basically social capital. Mm-hmm. But how how, do, how does a person like you or me say to a, an organization in the midst of sort of today's climate with some of this animosity that's directed towards the old white donors, you know, in many cases, the old white male donors, how do we convey to them that? These are lone, these are super wealthy, in many cases, lonely people that if you'll create environment, like when, like when Brene Brown talks about belonging, for example, these people are looking for places to belong. They don't want to hijack your mission. They don't want to, they don't even necessarily want to, they don't want to sit on your damn board, um, but they do want to belong. So how do we convey that in a con, in a con, in sort of in an environment right now where saying that the, Saying that the old rich white guy wants to belong to your organization kind of puts everybody's sort of fists up and makes them defensive. How do you address that? Well, the first thing Putnam, is Putnam, that's what Putnam was basically saying, right? Was that the old rich white guy, even though he might be arrogant and stubborn and everything else, he really just wants to belong. Um, right? Absolutely. I mean, yeah, I think first of all, you have to kind of describe the elephant, which is huge. Because we've let all this go. We're not working this way. We're not working yeah. this way anymore. So we have to kind of describe it and then take a bite out of the elephant. And I think an easy bite is to start with, with the stewardship of the donors you have. Yeah. And, you know, invest. You, there was something that I just read today. And now I, it's, it was talking about, it was actually quantifying. And I, I love, I do, I do quantify, you know, I, <laughs> I use that too, but um, yes. quantifying the impact of losing your fundraisers and how much it really costs and how, what the sure. value is they're bringing. And so, you know, part of that is getting, investing in, in people who just really are focused on stewardship. And that doesn't mean that that fundraiser with that relationship is not facilitating it, but it's just some extra resources for that fundraiser and giving them permission to spend enough time, enough meaningful time, not just like, Hey, tell me your story, you know, kind of (laughs) meaningful time. Um, figuring out what social capital means because the the old white guy you describe, he may not really know himself like many of us 
don't. He do- I, I guarantee. I've I've sat. I don't know about you, but I've spent my almost my entire career sitting across the table from old white guys who were at least twenty to thirty years my senior, who had more wealth than you and I probably will ever have between the two of us. Um, and these are some of the most lonely people who are grasping for identity, and and, and they're also some of the most impressionable people. These aren't monsters. No. Well, and just like when you cultivate that that donor, you don't let them decide what they're going to do. You know, you kind of talk with them. What, what is it we need? And why did you come up with this? And let's kind of dig in and find out what this is really about. It's the same with the stewardship. You may find that, that, that man, that, that cranky man um, (laughs) doesn't really want to sit on a board. Doesn't know those people knows that the board is kind of a setup just for more giving. Maybe he really is just, you know, loves to learn or, or loves to go places or wants to meet other people, wants to find a friend. That's then you steward them. That's that's social yes. capital to them at that moment. It can change. That's why the conversation must go on. So, hey. so it may be that you don't have to, you just need to pair him up with a young person to mentor or something. And that's going to just change his life. So, so articulate this for me in your words, because this is what you're basically saying we sell them a different type of capital when we, for example, put their names on the side of buildings. Half the people I talk to lately seem to have this animosity towards the wealthy donor who would put their names on the side of buildings. And so many times I've wanted to say half the people that I've ever met that have their names on the side of buildings didn't want their names on the side of buildings to begin with. I was just about to say that I have been over the years, a part of not a whole lot, but several like building naming type of situations. Yeah. And every single time they have said absolutely not. And it's taken like a year to talk them into it. And the and the right. rationale from the institution is, but when right. you do that, it encourages other people to give, which I, I don't know. I mean, I'd like to see the date on that. It. Yeah. I don't know if anyone's done that. Maybe we should, but um, maybe just stand outside a library. Well, because you're, and you're trying to convince. Does that make you want to give somebody <laughs> this name you can, you don't know? Aren't we turning them into consumers? Isn't that basically what we're doing? We're basically turning them into consumers. I, 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 I jumped in there too soon. I don't, I, I, so why is it that we're selling them something else instead of understanding social capital? Because when I, ha- I had a gentleman, I've talked about him before. He's deceased now. But with the last building project I worked on here in my local community, I was standing in his kitchen with him while he was hosting a small dinner party for us. And I asked Louis, I said, Louis, how would you like us to acknowledge the gift? And he knew what I meant because his name's on other buildings all around town. Even after he died, people kept putting his names on things. And he said to me, he said, Jason, give it to somebody else. And I thought, here's a guy who spent his entire life sort of investing in his local community. His name's on enough shit. He doesn't want his name on yet something else. And in some ways, I felt like he was saying to me, you've now diminished the meaningfulness of what it is. I've done for your organization by just sort of selling me the rights to put my name on the side of yet another building. You know, one of the biggest things we have to discover when we are getting to know people is what their moral and ethical frameworks are that are informing what they're doing. And, you know, there are so many, especially for people of faith, there's that 
there's that really that Aristotelian sense of human flourishing. Like this is about me becoming the best person I can. And when you have been a part of someone, because they often have no idea that that's where they're coming from. They think everybody thinks that way. But for someone who is really, truly about, I am doing this because um, I I want, I want to become a better person. I want to help people. I want to be, you know, do what I can, all of this. And then you get them all the way through to that massive gift. I mean, and all that means and how you've built that trust. And then you say, Hey, you want us to put your name up on the building? Because in, in those really faith-based and we all have a blend of of different ones. It's not always about that, but in those really faith-based, there is a hierarchy of gifts and, you know, the gifts that you give to someone you will never know are really, mm-hmm. that's the toughest one, right? Mm-hmm. It's, it's so yeah. much easier to give, to help your kid who needs some help, you know, yeah. that's an easy yeah. one, but, and it's, it can be an insult. And that's been my experience. I remember a large gift um, and, you know, same thing name. And it, it was just like, it, it hurt, it hurt them. They ended up yes. deciding to name it after their parents. Right. That, you know, yeah. but, but yeah, we, we have to, I, I teach ethics and, um, uh-huh. philanthropy ethics. And one of the big things that I teach and in the, and this program, it's with the Lilly family school of philanthropy. Most of the, it's a master's program and most of them are professionals. So this is about a professional application of ethics. And one of the big things that we teach in that is here, here's what we kind of know about the three broad approaches like ethical moral approaches people have to giving and that's they learned it from their family they learned it from church they don't know it's functioning there they don't it's unconscious you need to figure that out and it's pretty easy and once you do you need to work with them appropriately because some people are very like it's the right thing to do story's over i just i made a i made money and i need to give some out okay you don't need to necessarily get into their heart that much. This is much more about like, I made this much, you know, here, that's more that utilitarian, like, okay, how can I help the most people? That's all I care about. Yeah. But you have to figure that out. And it really affects how you develop them, the the cases for giving that you put in front of them, um, because you don't want to step on toes and and offend someone because you're coming at them with a different kind of rationale. Yeah. Yeah. Is that what, so in my forthcoming book, I, I make the critique and the, I make the very hard argument that basically fundraising's informed too much by consumerism, that we, we think the donor is one and the same with the consumer. And, and I think that's, and when we take it back to like Putnam and we think about sort of like the notion of selling the naming rights on the same side of a building, it's not a whole lot different than selling me a tote bag for my $25 gift to NPR, for example. I mean, is that. I do wish they would I, stop doing that, by the way, because that just perpetuates. And I give to NPR and I hate the right, way they fundraise. Right, right. I absolutely. <laughs> is. Is. <laughs> Is because consumerism as a society, I mean, that's essentially what the 20, 20, 20th century was all about. We all just became sort of consumers. And I feel like when I'm reading people like Putnam, he's saying we need to stop being consumers. We need to be citizens. And I think it just as a sort of a, a place to wrap up, I'm, I'm interested in your thoughts on this point. If we can shift our donors thinking and we can shift our own thinking and we and we want to achieve some of these qualitative aspirations that we've all been 
barking up trees about for the last year in the midst of this pandemic, isn't it going to, and if we want to reach for more justice oriented, more long-term sort of aspirations, isn't it going to, isn't going to require that we see our donors as citizens or some other definition other than consumers. You and I are not talking about consumers in this conversation. And I think when we get that young fundraiser at 28 years old in his or her sport coat sitting at that coffee table, I think the most meaningful and most effective conversations look like two people who are citizens of a community rather than a salesperson who's pitching a product or a service. It's an insult. I mean, we are in the business the nonprofit sector providing a public good and yeah. we partner with people who are part of that public, whether yes. they are the ones who, who, you know, are, receive, you know, receive yes. the, these outcomes of our mission or on the, or, or they're supporting it. And yeah, it's, it's a, it's a lack of respect. This is their community. You know, this is their yeah. society also. And, and it's, we really, need to come at them like here's the thing that we're actually working on what do you think what, right. where are you where do you stand on this and yeah i mean that's the beauty of it that's why we're drawn to it because that's how it gets to be it doesn't have to be manipulative it's it's really about joining forces we talk about that all the collective action hey that's our donors they're there <laughs> they're there right. we, we just not, we just right. are looking at them through a different lens and we don't realize that's the collective action these are the people we can you know get inspired yeah, I, I, I mean has it has has your experience right i i have found that the most generous fun the most generous donors out there are also oftentimes not the ones that are compelled by desires for control i feel like we think that there's a donor out there this you know this omnipresent universal donor who wants control of our organizations, but the donor that you're describing and sort of alluding to, and the one that we're sort of talking about this whole time, isn't really a donor who's all about control. Um, they've controlled enough. If they're at the point where they're writing you five and six figure checks or even larger, they've controlled enough, right? Yeah. And this is, again, the fundraiser being the bridge. This is where the kind of training can really change that and just help them shift off that and get and not be afraid. And that takes time and trust. And, you know, it's OK. You're going to be a part of these conversations. Absolutely. Um, we're going to figure this out together sometimes, you know, but you're right. I mean, it's just people are going to function the way they're used to functioning. And when a fundraiser kind of encounters that and they're like, OK, OK, yeah, yeah, we'll we'll. Yeah, whatever you want. You know, that's a real missed opportunity. <laughs> Are they scared of that? You've referenced that. You've sort of alluded to that type of a conversation twice now, the last two comments. Are, are basically the organizations just scared of having that conversation? Is that the is that the reason why we can't get away from direct mail? And is that the reason why we re rely on creepy, intrusive well screening? Is because to just sit at that table and let a meaningful conversation emerge? scares the jajibis out of us? I think it's probably uncomfortable because we're not trained. You know, I'm very, yeah, right. and that gets into management. And I think there needs to be, the management of fundraisers needs to be so hands-on, full of training and not yeah. sitting out listening to people do presentations, but practicing, you know. <laughs> Doing like playing. what you and I did here. Role like playing, you and I yeah. did here. Mm -hmm. we, we don't know how to, we have not taught fundraisers 
Right. I, I've done 260 of these things now. Conver- fundraisers are the most conversational people, but we don't have a script. You didn't I know where this was going to go. We had a general sense. We know where we both come from. But is that basically, in a lot of ways, sort of the part of the essence of what the problem is, is that we don't know how to sit at that lunch table, that meta, you know, that hypothetical lunch table, and just let the conversation sort of go where it goes. I don't think we have a lot of we don't we don't have enough elders in our field. You know, everyone I talk to who's a consultant is like it's, it's like I just had to get out of there. I'd had enough. And, you know, we need, we, we really want young people, but we also need elders. And this is where in your organization, you just, you take, you take the new employee with you, you know, Hey, so-and-so and and just let them see. That's how I learned to fundraise. I mean, I still remember uh, my friend who was the fundraiser for a botanical garden, my very first job at nonprofit. And I went with her and I learned from watching her. Yes. So I mean, yeah. I, I'm very sad, you know, when I go into places and I love, I mean, I have millennials, the children, I adore them. They're going to change the world for us, but all of the whole generation is amazing, but I don't like it when I don't see any fundraisers who are my age, you know, and I'm not very old. I'm not even 50 yet, <laughs> yes, getting yes, there. Yes. but that's, that's not good. You know, where, where are they? And, um, we need, there, there is a general. It's, it's interesting. There are, I think there are elders out there. So there's a group out there. Um, Catherine, you've probably talked to them. There's a group that retired of fundraisers that retired before the turn of the century that I occasionally talk to. And they're very, they have a lot of animosity and angst towards the way that fundraising has played out for the first two decades of the 20th century, 21st century. They, they, it was all pre a lot of this, a lot of the stuff that you and I are sort of sort of surfacing our conversation on the, the, the criticism didn't really, wasn't sort of in place in any significant way prior to the turn of the century and prior to the internet, for example. And I very routine. And so most of these people, um, you know, they're, 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 they're past retirement, but I occasionally talk to them. Sometimes they're guests on my podcast. Sometimes they ended up in consulting. Um, they're like pre moves management. They're pre wealth screening. They're pre, you know, they're pre online giving. Um, well, and let's be clear, you know, we are not saying that it should go back that way. I mean, one of the dark sides of social capital is it's cl- it can be clannish if it's not, yes, yes, if it's not yes. inclusive. And so yeah. we're paying the price for, for a lot of the way fundraising was done 20 years ago, 30 years ago, 40, because it left a ton of people out. <laughs> so yeah. I'm so happy about those changes that are happening, but yeah. you are right. And this is why I just want to blame these quantitative measurement models because it creates behavior that no one wants. We don't want to work that way. So it's really that. And it's, you know, but, but it, and it replaces strong management and it replaces knowledge, education, training. And that's the, that's, it's just being lazy. And, you know, that's my opinion. Lazy and lazy and creepy, right? Yeah, creepy yeah. and lazy. Too much yeah. of fundraising is just lazy and creepy. <laughs> Catherine, I've had you for an hour. We lose our listeners at this point. Um, somebody, I guarantee you, somebody's listening to this conversation. They've heard way too much of my opinion if they're a regular listener, but they're intrigued by what you've had to say, and they're going to reach out to you. How do you want them to do that? 
please just reach out to me on LinkedIn. Um, my webcast is uh, my website's called Goodruption. We do want to mm-hmm. change things, but we want to do it for good. So I would love to hear from from anybody. Have a chat. Who is that person, Catherine? So that, that's one of the things I oftentimes ask uh, consulting types. Somebody picks up the phone or sends you an email. Who is that type of person you want to reach out to you? Where do they so, find themselves? I really want to hear from from fundraisers. Um, this is mm-hmm. this is the research I'm doing now is the fundraiser experience. And so, you know, reach out. I'm going to have a big survey. So I do yeah. want to get I do want to kind of put a pin in that so everyone knows that's coming. And then, of course, organizations like, you know, if you're sitting out there and you run an organization and you are just like, ah, oh, I hate to admit this, but I absolutely hate this. I hate it. I hate how it works. I hate thinking about it. How can this actually be a thing that's good? This idea of a culture of philanthropy, it's real. It can happen. So let's make this not a creepy, dreaded activity and actually let it be something that edifies everyone, including your donors. (laughs) Catherine, it has been a pleasure. You are always welcome back. Thank you. Thank you so much, Jason. Have you read the book that nonprofit leaders and fundraising professionals alike are calling a must read? In this pocket manifesto for today's fundraising professional, Jason deconstructs why many of us find ourselves working for organizations where we cannot accomplish our goals. These same organizations are notorious for rapid turnover and high donor attrition. To avoid this all too familiar path, Jason offers direction from those who want to be recognized and admired for their work. The war for fundraising talent, challenges are ingrained beliefs and assumptions about how effective fundraising really works, and it questions the prevailing wisdom hiring decisions and donor behavior. Published by Gatekeepers Press, The War for Fundraising Talent is now available on Amazon and other major retailers. We want to thank you for listening to today's episode of the Fundraising Talent Podcast. We hope you enjoyed today's show and hope you will come back for next week's interview, where we will discuss with those on the front line who are defining what it means to be a fundraising professional. If you'd like to be a guest on the Fundraising Talent Podcast, visit our Facebook page or email Jason at jason at lewisfundraising.com. In your email, be sure to tell us about where you work and why you believe you would be a great addition to the upcoming lineup. Thank you again for joining us today, and we look forward to you being a part of the continuing conversation as we shape how the nonprofit sector thinks about fundraising talent.